We are continuing our series in Acts. And today we jump ahead to Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. It's a story about the people who are in bondage and people who are free. And it's not always easy to tell the difference. So listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Acts chapter 16. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for the lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I honestly don't know if I've ever related more to the Apostle Paul than this part in the story. When Paul had a little girl following him around for days, saying the same thing over and over again, and annoying the ever-living spit out of him. Maybe that's just me in my household. But I've never felt such kinship with this man when it says that Paul was greatly annoyed and finally just snapped. He turns around and in the name of Christ orders this fortune-telling spirit in her to be gone. And in that instant, she was healed. She was freed from the spirit. But this girl wasn't really free because she was a slave girl. And her owners made a lot of money off of her by forcing her to tell other people's fortunes. Her life was not her own. She was another's property, exploited for their gain. Today we call this human trafficking. And when the girl's owners see that their means of making money are gone, they get angry. They seize Paul and Silas and drag them into a crowded marketplace before the authorities and check out what they accuse them of. They say, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. But you see, that's not at all the reason they brought Paul and Silas here. The real reason, because the girl's freedom affected their bottom line. But that won't get them anywhere with the crowd. So look at what they do. They instigate fear. They say that these foreigners are endangering our sense of identity and security as a nation by bringing in their extreme customs. Does that sound at all familiar? like the political world we're living in now. They make anti-Semitic remarks and unleash the crowd's fears and hatred of the outsider. Silas and Paul are then stripped, severely beaten, and thrown into jail. And so there they sit, unjustly accused, beaten bloody, and legs in stocks. And then, in the darkest night, when all hope seems lost, Paul and Silas start to sing. They sing hymns, probably from the old blue hymnal. It was a long time ago. It reminds me of that scene from Shawshank Redemption when Andy, the prisoner, was processing donations for the prison's library, and, and he comes across this recording of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. And even though it would mean certain punishment, Andy could just not keep that treasure to himself. And so he barricades himself in the prison broadcast room and turns on the intercom system, the one that the warden regularly uses to harass and intimidate the prisoners. And as Andy cranks up the volume, the hauntingly beautiful Duetino Solaria 
fills the prison air. This stunning soprano voice. Everyone stops, stunned, and a hush falls over the entire prison. It's not long before the warden and his guards batter down the door and shut it all down, but, but for a moment, beauty unimaginable washes over the prison. Morgan Freeman's character, Red, said it was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage. It made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. I believe that's what Paul and Silas are doing here. Chained up in the dark squalor of prison, they lift their voices in praise, transforming the prison into the church. After all, the, the church isn't confined to a building. That's not what makes up the church. No, God says, where our, where our two or more are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. That's where the church is. And here in this darkened prison, these two middle-aged Jewish men are feeling their way through a duet, invoking the presence of God while the other prisoners listen in. And then it happens. The ground starts shaking, and the foundation of the prison starts to crack, and the doors start creaking, and hinges come popping open, and then shackles fall off, not just on Paul and Silas, but on all the prisoners. And they are all free. Free. Notice everyone in this story who at first appears to be enslaved, the slave girl, Paul, Silas, the prisoners, they're the ones who are actually free. While everyone who first appears to be free, the slave owners, the magistrates in the crowd, are shown to be slaves. The slave owners are enslaved to their money, the leaders, enslaved to their customs. And now here we encounter the jailer, who is also bound as a slave. And this is counterintuitive, yes? A jailer controls and contains others, right? He literally holds the key that deprives people of their liberty. And yet notice the jailer in our story is himself in prison. For when he wakes up and realizes that the prison doors were all opened, he draws his sword to kill himself, figuring suicide was a better option than what awaited him. In many ways, this is a deeper, stronger type of bondage, one of mind and heart. As I was preparing this week, this, this jailer just kept coming to mind. And the question just kept nagging at me. What thoughts were going through his mind in the time between waking up and drawing his sword? What lies did he believe to be true when he reached for that sword? 
that he failed at his job? It's not true. And could never survive the repercussions of his failure? Also not likely true. That his family was better off without him? For sure not true. That he was not worthy to live? Not even close to being true. I don't know what thoughts were on the jailer's mind the night he drew that sword to take his life. I can't say what the words are, but I can say that whatever those words are, the thing those words form are lies, half-truths at best. And lies and half-truths are always the way the great deceiver imprisons us. Nadia Boltz-Weber reminds us that there's a reason that in parts of the Hebrew Bible, the devil is called Ha-Satan, which translates as the accuser. It's the voice of the accuser that tells us lies about ourselves and other people. It's the voice that accuses me of sins which have already been forgiven. It's the voice that repeats harmful things to, that were said to me as a child. The voice that makes us eat less than we should or more than we should. Sometimes we try to shut that voice up with painkillers or alcohol. The voice that can make us spend more hours at work than we should or make us go to ridiculous lengths to try and prove it wrong or try and prove it right. It's the voice that comes to those who are so low and lies about the value of their life. I don't know what thoughts form in the minds of those who cause fatal harm to themselves, what lies they're believing to be true, but I do know this, that voice that makes them lift, them, lift their swords against themselves is not the voice of God. And in our text today, I am deeply moved that the jailer hears another voice, a voice that cries out, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And how that word was enough for the jailer to drop his sword. Paul says, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. As if to say, you're believing the wrong story entirely. Don't choose death before seeing that death has already been conquered. Now hear me, I don't think we should treat this as a formula. As if being present is all that it takes to help someone. Because too many of us have stories of people we've loved who either show no signs at all and were left trying to make sense of the senseless, or who showed all the signs in the world, and no matter how much we begged them to not harm themselves, it didn't seem to matter. But it does matter, because there are also those in our lives, or maybe there are those in this room, who are telling themselves a story with no escape but death, 
and yet someone said a thing or did a thing which diverted their impulse and somehow they are still here. You're still here. And I thank God for that. So this is all such a tender and complicated mystery. And given all of that, we have to ask, does what we do as a church even still matter? Does it matter that we read these old stories and sing these old hymns and say these old prayers? I don't want to oversimplify it, but given that the suicide rate has risen astronomically in the last 15 years, during the same period of time that our culture seems to have doubled down on the false story that autonomy is the highest good, that we don't need each other, that we don't need our elders, that the most valuable thing you can do is to be a social media influencer of others, mainly through lying about your life, and that you can actually manifest everything you want in life. And if you haven't managed to do that yet, it's because you aren't trying hard enough. And you better hope that no one finds out that you've made a mistake, because in this story, there is no mercy. So if you're sitting here wondering if Christianity still matters, all I can say is it has to. And you know why? Because we have a better story. A story of God who in Jesus Christ came to break every chain that shackles us, who went about healing the sick and setting the prisoners free. He took a spiritual hammer to every tangled chain of lies and sickness and systems that harm people. That God was and is and will continue to redeem us and all creation through means that would never make him an influencer on Instagram, through means like messiahs conceived by unwed mothers and loving the enemy and dinner with sex workers and Sadducees and forgiveness of sins and a crucified savior and the resurrection of wounded bodies. Sometimes it feels like all too much. And we can't do everything, but we can tell a better story. And don't we need, desperately need, a better story right now? But to hear that better story, I need even just one other person. Because alone, I will always extrapolate only some information about my life and then start telling myself the wrong story, convinced that it's true. Alone, I will believe only what the accuser tells me about myself. Alone, I will despair. I mean, there's a reason that Jesus said, where two or more are gathered, he is there because we cannot create the word of the Lord for ourselves. Like that jailer, we need even just one other person. I think the bravest thing the jailer did in this story was call for the lights, to see for himself that people were still here. 
And when he sees the open doors and the broken shackles and yet no one has escaped, he can't believe it. Who are these men who sing in the darkness? Who could have escaped but didn't? These men who aren't fearful but seem to be living by a higher authority. Who were free, whether they were bound in chains or not. And trembling, he falls down on his face before them. And he asks this crucial question, what must I do to be saved? It's the same question that lies at the bottom of each of our hearts. It's a question that acknowledges the bondage that we're in and a cry for help. Frederick Buechner says that when we repress memories or deny problems or conceal inadequacies, it's like we're erecting walls to hide from one another and from ourselves. But what starts out as a fortress to keep the enemy out soon turns into a prison where you become the jailer and thus your own enemy. It's a wretched and lonely place. You can't be what you want to be or do what you want to do. People can't see through all that masonry to who you truly are. And half the time, you can't even see who you truly are yourself. You've been walled up so long. Fortunately, he says, there are two words that offer a way out. And they're simply these. Help me. It's not always easy to say them. You've got your pride, after all. And you're not sure there's anybody you trust enough to say them to. But they're always worth saying to another human being, a friend, a stranger, to God. Maybe it comes to the same thing. Help me. They open a door through the walls, that's all. At least hope is possible again. At least you're no longer alone. Help me, the jailer says. And here's how Paul responds. Okay. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household will be saved. I love that only the belief of the jailer is enough for his entire household to experience salvation. Just like it was only Paul and Silas who prayed and sang hymns, and yet it was all the prisoners who were free, like somehow the faith of another is sufficient for the whole group. Because I can remember times in my life when I was in the dark, feeling shackled to certain ways of thinking and feeling and acting, not being able to free myself, and yet I still experienced freedom because of the faith of others and the songs of others, and the prayers of others. So many of us have felt tortured by not knowing if we have enough faith or the right kind of faith. But as one of my teachers said, faith is never given in sufficient quantities to individuals. 
It's given in sufficient quantities to communities because this thing isn't an individual competition. It's a team sport. God has provided us all the faith sufficient for our freedom. We just have to take turns being the ones lowered through the roof to Jesus and being the ones doing the lowering. That's why we show up for one another, even in the darkest of times, especially in the darkest of times. It's why we bring food to give away at Crop Drop. It's, it's why we gather together in grace groups. It's why we sing hymns at the top of our lungs in a bar. It's our way of telling the world, do not cause yourself harm. We are all here. Even when you could have walked away, even when you could have just left, you stayed here. You stayed here whether you had to drive from Mountain Brook or Vestavia, from Hoover or Trussville. I thank God that all of you come from far away to be here. I thank God that even though there are more convenient locations, that you show up because you know that my attendance is not just for myself. It's so that someone else who's in this neighborhood, someone else who's in this church, can encounter the better story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This area is better because we're still here. This neighborhood is better because IPC is still here. And the poor should be cared for because IPC is still here. Captives should be released because IPC is still here. The lost should be found because IPC is still here. The blind should see because IPC is still here. Those who are oppressed and depressed and distressed should be better because IPC is still here. Not here to bask in its architecture or its rich history. Not here to boast in its preaching or its music. But we're still here because we serve the living God who looks beyond our faults and sees our needs. We're still here. IPC, we must ensure that the church never becomes a prison by its customs and its ways but it becomes a place of liberation. The jailer's life was changed because Paul said, do not cause yourself harm. We are all here. And then the jailer brought them outside and the text says, Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him. And then there's this detail in the end that just, just bowls me over with its beauty. The jailer brings Paul and Silas to his home, and he washes their wounds, the very wounds he was complicit in inflicting. This is not a story of perfect, shiny, happy people stooping down to save the broken ones. No, everyone is broken here. Everyone is wounded. And when they have a chance to see that and to gather, that's when the healing happens. Do not cause yourself harm. We are all here.
You are not the story that you tell about yourself. You were wrapped up in a better story. And if you cannot believe it, let me believe it for you. Because we are all here. And there are wounds to clean and meals to share. And you are not, you are not going to want to miss the impossible, beautiful things to come. There is a balm in Gilead that makes the wounded whole. So please stay with us, because I might need you to believe it for me when I cannot. And let the church say amen.